The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are thankful that as this song reflected the desire of the psalmist is real, possible, and in fact, desirable and experienced by us now because of Christ. We read about this in the Old Testament and we desire it because you have done a work in us and we can actually have it because of the work that you have done to draw us into fellowship with you, to put us in your presence. What a marvelous thing you've done. So we, your people, we, we sit here and we bow before you and we say thank you. And we ask you for more grace in this moment to open our eyes to the glory of Christ and the goodness of, of walking with him through life. Open our eyes to that to teach us from your word, to teach us how to walk with him, to teach us this morning in particular some things that would be, if you would move, would be greatly assuring to us and instructive. So Spirit of God, we ask you to open up the scriptures and illumine them to our minds. To see things that are right there, that are are not complicated, but perhaps uh, to see them afresh and to see them in a, in, in a winsome and encouraging light. Draw us on with the Scripture towards Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would commission the Spirit to do that here so that Christ would be exalted, but so that we, your people, would grow and would experience more deeply and more wonderfully and more worshipfully what it is to be in your presence and to walk with you through life. We, we sit and we sing and we pray as we have already today and we sense that this is a holy place, that you are in our midst, God, and so we look to you in hope. Thankful and in hope that you will do a work here in our midst this morning to mature us as your people and to call in perhaps some here who aren't your people yet, to call them into your family. Would you do that work here this morning? And in so doing, would you build a body? Would you build a church here that is a delight to your name and is, and is, a, and is a good witness to the world about what it is to know you and to walk with you and to experience you? In holy delight, make us a people that are pleasing to you and that are a clear witness to the world and a people who walk in joy with you. You are so good. So do work this morning, Lord. Give clarity to the words that I'm going to say. Cause what's true, right, and helpful to rest deeply on your people. Be the teacher here. Be the shepherd of your flock. We look to you in hope and in thanksgiving pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning once again to Luke chapter 4, 
And as the title of the sermon and the text selected implies, we're going to be passing over, once again, passing over ground that we've already covered to glean a little bit more from it. Luke 4, yet again. And two weeks ago, we saw Jesus leaving the wilderness temptation that he had been led into and led through, facing the temptation that was, that was deliberate in the plan of God. And we saw him come out of it triumphant over Satan and over those temptations, and then immediately, right away, to embark upon his personal ministry, going from the south in Israel up to the north into the region of Galilee and beginning to travel town to town to town, synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, teaching. And verses 16 to 30 gave us an example, one example of that teaching, by recounting for us what happened in his hometown of Nazareth when he got there. He came into the synagogue, read the prophecy from the book of Isaiah, and then preached that he was the fulfillment of it. He was the one upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rested to empower him to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of release from captivity and oppression, the year of hope, the year of, of all good to the people. That's me said Jesus. Amazing claim, and one that the people of his hometown who had known him since birth said, no, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. Way too familiar with him to, to give serious consideration to it. That he can't be the one. We've known him forever. And so, familiarity breeding contempt in this case, they set him aside, and Jesus walked away. But he didn't stop teaching. He went, as we saw last week, verses 31 and following, he came into more villages, and this time Capernaum, a city that he had been to before and would return to often. And again, we saw teaching and preaching, beginning and end of that passage, bracketing it. It's still very important, and as Jesus said at the end, it's the reason that I was sent, to preach, to preach, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's front and center important. But in this particular passage, the heart of the passage emphasized the personal ministry of healing. As he healed people, both from demonic oppression and ordinary physical malady. And the point being that he has astonishing power, astonishing authority to teach and to heal, both. To teach, to express, and to press into the hearts of people the good news of the kingdom of God. All sorts of people then also found astonishing authority and power compassionately exercised to heal them. That was the second point last week. He has this great power, and he is extremely willing with compassion to use that power to care for people, all sorts of people. Not just Christians, all sorts of people. He is willing, like a tender shepherd looking at people harassed and helpless, sick and hurt and oppressed by demons with no hope, he is willing to exercise his great power to meet them in their need, compassionately to care for them. Casting out demons when needed, healing all sorts of physical maladies, both those, as we emphasize repeatedly, some of which come from demonic but not all of which, those that come from demonic power, he heals them. Those that come from, we might call, ordinary natural means, he heals them. He's physically caring for people 
and preaching the truth that they need to hear the good news of the kingdom. And at that mention of kingdom, we come to this week's sermon. We need to see all that we saw last week. That's extremely important. And I think that as, as you look at that, you see something. One of the points you emphasized was just behold Jesus. Astonishing authority and power. Compassionately used to care. Look at, you see, look at him. Marvelous. You need to see all that. And then there's a little bit more. Because while that should draw us onto him, we see that he has power to help, power to heal, and it should draw us who are weary and heavy laden, draw us to him to find rest for our souls there. There's also something we need to consider. This is all very calculated. Something more going on here that kind of arises when you realize that there's a deliberateness to this. It's easier to see the deliberateness in the, in the teaching because he's going from town to town to town, synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. He opened the scroll and he looked for a particular place. That, that's all very deliberate. It's a little more clear that he's doing something with, with the teaching, but it might seem that the healing just kind of pops up. That it's kind of incidental. After all, he's teaching in the synagogue and the demon brings it up. The demon mentions who he is and kind of starts it. So it might seem that he didn't really intend any of that. And then later when he goes to Simon's mother-in-law's house, the people ask him. And then the crowds just come. He didn't send out like a press release inviting people to come. So it might seem that all the healing was just kind of sprung on him and it was inadvertent and it just happened. And that would be to miss something important, to miss the big picture purpose. The healings are also very deliberate. They are less obviously deliberate, but they are deliberate. There's an intentionality, there's a purpose in the healing ministry that connects back to the larger issue of kingdom. What's going on in the kingdom? Luke's wanting to show us something by showing us the healings, not only to show us the compassion of Jesus, although we need to clearly see that, but to show us something more. So here's the main point that I'm going to be working towards this morning. And really, as I said, you know, the title says this is part two. I'm going to make two observations from the passage, but in a sense, they're also like kind of observations three and four. If last week had been a two-hour sermon, this would have been numbers three and four from last week's sermon. So Here's maybe like a sub-point underneath the main point from last week. Here's what I'm working towards this morning. The spirit of power at work through Jesus assures us that the kingdom has come and shows us how the kingdom comes. The spirit of power at work through Jesus, these are going to kind of be the two points, assures us that the kingdom has come and shows us how the kingdom comes. So I'm going to work towards two observations, but first I'm going to read a number of verses that we've already read. So I'll, I'll read them slowly so you can follow along. They're in chapters 3 and 4, and you'll hear a theme in them, I think. 
I'm beginning in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 first. Luke 3, 16. Jesus answered, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And the temptations follow. Verse 13 then. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Teaching, verse 18. Reading in the synagogue, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 31. And I'll read 31 to 41. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. 
And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. We'll stop there. So here's the first observation I want to make from these passages, these two chapters and especially the verses that I read. Here's the first point. Jesus ministers in the authority and power of the Spirit to show, to make clear, that the kingdom of God has come upon the world. Jesus ministers in the authority and power of the Spirit to show that the kingdom of God has come upon the world. The verses that I read, and obviously I selected them out of a couple of chapters we've already covered, we've already seen them, but I picked those out to kind of draw out something to show us that even in just these two chapters, even just this early in the gospel, Luke is trying to show us something repeatedly, but it's easy to miss it because it's always kind of subordinate clauses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, and then we focus on what the main clause is in the sentence. He's trying to show us how much the ministry of the Spirit is connected to Jesus. Just in these short chapters, several times he mentions that Jesus is the man of the Spirit, you might say. Now, we know, we've read the whole story, we know that Jesus is also, he's not just man, he's also God, fully God. He himself is God. We know that. That's not the point here exactly. The emphasis laid in these verses at this point in Luke's gospel is that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. He has the Spirit resting on him and in the power of the Spirit is led into the wilderness and led by the Spirit all through the wilderness faces the temptations. Triumphant from the wilderness, he comes out and in the power of the Spirit goes to Galilee and then exercises tremendous power, 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 power and then can therefore pour out the Spirit because he has him. It's about Jesus and the Spirit. Luke's trying to make a point there. He is uniquely directed, controlled, empowered by God the Spirit, such that when we see Jesus doing something, we should think, there's the Spirit at work through Jesus. And we're supposed to think that there's a Spirit at work through Jesus for a reason. You can see the connection first in verse 18, chapter 3. We talked about this a little bit already. Luke 4, 18, quoting, I said chapter 3, I mean 4. Chapter 4, 18, Luke shows us Jesus reading and quoting from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit is upon me because, for, second line, because he has anointed me to proclaim, to proclaim, to proclaim, to bring in this kingdom. 
The Spirit is laid upon Jesus so that Jesus can bring in the year of the Lord's favor. We talked about that a bit already when we covered that passage. He needs the Spirit because of what bringing in the kingdom is about. It's a war, a spiritual war. So there's, there's a reason right there, but when you take that one step further, because there's an important element of testimony here. Evidence. As we consider this evidence, it should have on us an assuring feel. It should strike us with assurance, perhaps with warning. But most of us, it should strike us with assurance. This piece of evidence it says something more than just, I need power to do this, therefore I have the Spirit on me. It says something, I'm actually who I say I am, and I'm actually doing what I say I'm doing. Look, the Spirit's at work. We'll see this in a couple of passages. Consider first Matthew chapter 12. Just think for a moment about a couple of passages. Matthew 12 is the first one. When the Pharisees saw Jesus in that passage, heal a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. He heals a demon-possessed man who's blind and mute. And the Pharisees claim that he's able to do that by the power of Satan. And so they dismiss him. And Jesus' answer, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. His kingdom's divided against himself. It won't stand. In other words, I'm not casting out demons by the power of Satan. That makes no sense. Think about that. It makes no sense. Satan is not against Satan. But rather, Jesus continues, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So think about this, Pharisees, he says. The unclean spirits are cast out by, not unclean spirits, the unclean spirits are cast out by the clean spirit, by the Holy Spirit, who's flowing out of me, which, alert, means something about who I am and what I'm doing. The kingdom of God has come upon you, like one man pounces on another to take him. The kingdom of God has come upon the world. Look. And beware. This is the Pharisees. The beware part applies to Pharisees, but the assurance and encouraging part, hear that in this passage, in, back in Luke chapter 7, makes a similar point. John the Baptist, in Luke 7, sends some guys to ask Jesus, Are you the one who was to come? Are, are you the guy? Or are we to wait for another? Or should we be expecting someone else? Why does John wonder that? I thought John was like rock solid sure. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says that in public repeatedly. He's sure. And now he says, uh, are, are you the guy? I'm not so sure. Why is that? Because if you read the context, John's in prison. And in John's mind, John's reading of the Old Testament, you'll recall... Jesus stopped right in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 61 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Hard stop. 
And the next phrase said, and the judgment. John just reads that right through and says, if Messiah comes, the messianic kingdom comes, there's deliverance, there's freedom of the oppression and the judgment of the oppressors. And here I am in prison. What's the deal? It hasn't happened. This is not what I thought was going to happen when Jesus came into my life. What is going on? Are you actually the Christ? Because I'm in jail and I got a sneaky suspicion he's going to cut off my head. Really? So they asked Jesus, are you the one? His answer, Luke 7, verse 21, in that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered the messengers, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Just like our chapter, chapter 4. Proclamation of the good news of the kingdom and the casting out of the demonic and the healing of every sort of affliction. Go tell John, this is what's going on in me. Am I the one who is to come? Look, for sure. I'm the one who's to come because the Spirit of the Lord at power, in power is at work through me. Look and rest assured. That's what he's pointing out. He's exerting superior authority and powerfully overthrowing a rival kingdom. Not only not only because, as we looked at and emphasized last week, not only because Jesus is compassionate, not only because he is, is, is entirely willing and eager to care for people, that is surely, absolutely surely, the point, one of the points, a point we need to see. But he's also doing this, he's also exercising the power of the Spirit to overthrow this kingdom as a work of evidence that something is going on here, something new, a new work has begun, something has come upon the world. One man is pouncing on the other. The man of the Spirit is pouncing on the demonic and on the evil and on the fallen to overthrow it and turn it and change it. And here's the evidence. You can rest assured the kingdom of God has come upon the world, John. Look what happens. It is not done, but it has begun. And we ourselves should note this. We should note this. Because it is very easy for us to identify with John the Baptist. How many of us how many times find ourselves, we're sitting in John the Baptist's position, you're in prison, so to speak, you're holding onto the, the short end of the stick of life and you're thinking, is this, is this what it's supposed to be? Because I'm pretty sure they're going to cut off my head. This is not what I thought was going to happen when Jesus came into my life. This is not what is supposed to be for, 
Somebody who is a follower of the sovereign, good, wise, powerful, gracious God who is full of compassion and has ultimate authority and power to care for me, she still left me. The doctors tell me I am going to die. They can't fix it. My kids are long gone. What happened? That's how it's supposed to be. This, this is you know, where we live right here. It is entirely common. And, and I recognize, you know, we, we all know, oh, come on, Steve, you know, we're not supposed to think like that. Stuff still happens. Well, sure, I, I know. We've, we've got this. We've got this divide where we, we have a theology that helps us clearly to understand the reign of God and trouble that happens in the world. But what I'm talking about is not when you're able to do this. I'm talking about when it's like this. Your life is gripped by it. You're in the doctor's office, and he says, terminal, nothing we can do about it. And the first thought that comes to your mind is, but, but wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I'm not, there's supposed to be something to do about it. They're supposed to... to to answer this, to, to fix, to heal, to... Or I thought I followed the biblical principles and my marriage comes back together. It got worse. Is that supposed to happen? In those moments, that's when what comes to our mind is, this is not what I thought... Am I right? Is this right? Or am I to look for another? It is easy to find ourselves there. It happens, I think, probably happens to every person sometime after they become a Christian. Very commonly, we become a Christian, somebody becomes a Christian, and it is awesome, the freedom, the deliverance, the liberty. You know what it is like. You read these verses and you say, good news to the poor in spirit, that was me, it is indeed good news. Liberty to the captive, I was, I know I was a slave and now I've been set free and it's, I see life so differently. A burden's been lifted and you feel like this. And four, five, six months later, you feel like this. And you begin to wonder, was I delusional? Was I just kind of like brainwashed? Did somebody sell me a bill of goods and in a moment of weakness I grabbed at it because I needed something? And now later I'm seeing this didn't really seem to work either. Very common for new Christians to go through that. If you want to know why that is, I think as a little aside, you can kind of find it in Satan's words. And the devil had ended every temptation. He departed until an opportune time. Satan's no fool. He's, he's, a, he's the perfect guerrilla warrior. You wait until, you don't, you don't attack here, you attack here. We go through this. We face this. Perhaps you're facing it right now. How do you respond to that? Well, what God would do, similar to these passages, Luke 7, Matthew 12, he would pull up something like our passage from Luke 4, and he would say, what do you see and what have you seen? And what are you looking at? What, do you, what have you seen? Have you seen in the scripture, let's start. Have you seen the record of what happened? 
The record is not in dispute. The explanation is in dispute. Some will say, oh, it's by the power of Satan that he drives out the demons. But we can't dispute he drives out the demons because that guy was going nuts and he couldn't see and he couldn't talk. And now he's in his right mind talking and seeing. We can't argue with that. We can argue with why that is. The record is not in dispute. Power and authority of astonishing magnitude was poured out in Jesus. On page after page of this book, we read record of it. And this book, recall, was a history book before it was the Bible, a religious book. Luke's writing careful history. Recall? He's checking through the details and laying them there in the public forum in the presence of a whole bunch of people who are still alive and would know and would have great motive to say otherwise if he got it wrong. Are you looking at that? Or are you looking at the prison bars in front of you saying, I'm in jail, how can this be? Are you looking at the supreme example of the power of the Spirit of God to cast out and cast down the demonic and to heal, to raise the dead, and to proclaim the power of the gospel? Are you looking at the greatest example of that, the tomb that's empty? The fact of the tomb that was empty. That does not happen by the power of the demonic. The demonic does not raise the dead, rip one captive out of his own hand. The demonic does not do that. The power of God does. So we need to to hear the counsel of God to us to say, read and look and see. Remember, the tomb was empty. The power of God has been poured out in Jesus Are you still in prison? Yeah. Did the doctor still say thus and so? Indeed, yes. And I have said, the kingdom has come. We could look back and look at history, and especially we look at the tomb empty. But even graciously, thankfully, God has given you evidence in your own life if you would see it. If you would see it, if you would stop and consider. If you're a Christian... The Spirit of God has been at work in your life powerfully, centering Jesus right in front of your eyes. There are things that you know and things that you have seen. And what happens is we set them aside in the face of something more alarming and we forget them. Go back, remember, look again. Sometimes, maybe what that means is you look at something where God did something miraculous, something extremely kind and providential, the the meeting of a need, the healing of a disease, the answering of a specific prayer. Maybe something like that. But even more than that, there is in every Christian within you, the Spirit of God lives and causes the Word of God to resonate with you to live as you read it and as you seek God and ask, are you the one who wants to come? The Spirit of God in you will say, it's alive, yes. But 
what happens is that doubt grows as we set aside the past evidence of the Scripture, set aside the past evidence of the empty tomb, set aside the past evidence of God in our lives, and stop reading our Bible. And then look at life. That's what causes doubt to just grow and blossom. And lack of assurance and worry. God has given you the evidence. He has shown you the kingdom has come. It's not done. We still pray, Lord, bring your kingdom. Make it, like a, make it on earth like it is in heaven. But something has dawned, and this is a different and a new day. And you have experienced it if you are a Christian. Remember and ask God to open your eyes to the evidence. It's here. That's one of the things that Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, Luke records it, one of the purposes of this story is to show an inbreaking, a coming upon the world of a new world. This should be, it, it really should be encouraging to you. And it should call you, cause you to kind of maybe pause with a little bit of warning in it. Because while we can identify with John, some of us also can identify with the folks in Nazareth or with the Pharisees that encountered Jesus. There's a warning here that says, in the same breath, the kingdom has come, be encouraged. But if you stand against it, be warned, because the kingdom has come. Perhaps some, I don't know who, but perhaps some, you're, you're kind of probably a little more like, like a Pharisee or like somebody in Nazareth saying, prove it to me. Show me something else. Show me something else. Show me something else. I knew, I knew a guy, um, a college student. I was sharing the gospel with him over the course of a couple different weeks. And he was listening and tracking with the gospel. He was, he was considering it, so it seemed, and he said, but I just don't know. I mean, is, 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 is God real? Is he here? And I said, well, I'm going to pray that he shows himself to you in some way. And then he kind of like dropped off the face of the earth. Like I couldn't get a hold of him. I went to a place where he lived. I couldn't find him. He just like disappeared. And two weeks later, reappeared. And I said, where, where'd you go? What happened? He said, oh, man. Two weeks ago, you know, the day after I met with you, I got in a car accident. And I was, was riding with so-and-so, you know, somebody that I knew, and and she veered off the road, and the car rolled three times. It was stunning. It was freaky. And we all got out of it and walked away safe. And I said, wait, so you're, what you're saying is that the day after we were talking about the gospel again, you were saying, is God real? I don't know. You got in a car accident, which you rolled the car three times, and you all got out of it and walked away safe. I said, Yeah. So, so what? Do you think maybe, maybe, I mean, maybe, that God was in that? He said, oh, no, that's just physics. Because of where I was sitting, when the car flipped over, and the type of car she had, is, I mean, really good, you know, like, shell protection. So the car didn't collapse on us, and, and I was buckled in, so I didn't get thrown out of the car. And that's why that happened. Okay. 
Granted, that is why that happened. But do you think God was in the design of the car and in the seatbelt? And the fact that he didn't run into a tree? And Nope. But I really hope God would show me that he's involved in the world. And then maybe I'll consider the gospel. You man from Nazareth. I don't know whatever happened to him, but, but don't be like that. God's at work. God's at work in the world. God's at work in your life. Because the kingdom has come upon the world and is overthrowing and clearing away everything that will stand against him. Don't get on the wrong side of this. Don't get on the wrong side of this. So beware of that, but be encouraged by it also. God has shown us and is showing us his hand. That should be an assurance to us. And the second point, Jesus ministers in the power of the Spirit because the power of the Spirit is needed to bring the kingdom to the world. Jesus ministers in the power of the Spirit because the power of the Spirit is needed to bring the kingdom to the world. So here's the second observation, or perhaps you might say the fourth observation of this long deal with this passage. What we're reading about here in chapter 4 is all under this heading of Jesus in the power of the Spirit went through Galilee, teaching and preaching, healing. And it shows compassionate, loving care for people, and it shows evidence that the kingdom of God is at hand. But why is the Spirit of God in the power of the Spirit, why is that what we're talking about here? Why is that the element that proves the kingdom of God? Could have had, say, like a magic password or something, or, or could have just showed great intelligence. Why is it power, spirit power, that's the issue here? Because the task at hand, the bringing of a kingdom into a world that is lost and dark and under the demonic and broken and blind. He's invading, he's bringing a kingdom and setting up a throne. The Spirit is invading and setting up a throne, enthroning Jesus in the midst of a kingdom that is demonic. We talked about this last week, some weren't here. We have to think for a second about the demonic. The demonic is not just bad stuff, distasteful things. The demonic world, the spirit world of fallen angels, demons, is real and terrifying if we understood it. And what's going on is a frontal attack on that realm of power to throw it away. We are powerless against that. We have nothing to do that can stop it. The only power that can defeat such powerful creatures, angels are creatures, they are fallen, the only power that can defeat such powerful creatures is a power from outside of the creation. 
power of the Spirit of God to subjugate the demonic. And we talk about healing and the reversing of all of the, of the maladies and all of the deformities and all of the injuries and in the end, finally, even the decaying and the weakness of the human body. We're talking about overthrowing and turning back laws of nature. The laws of nature spoken into existence by the mouth of God that governs how cells work, governs the decay of our bodies, governs cause and effect and gravity that that controls how injuries happen. We are bound to them and we cannot overcome them. The only power that can overcome the law of nature is the law is the mouth that spoke that law, the mouth of God. The only one that that can overcome the power of the curse and all that is is the mouth that spoke that curse against the nature of Genesis 3 and the man and the woman of Genesis 3. We have no power to overcome, to reverse curse and reverse laws of nature. Only God can. And the blindness of spiritual eyes and and the deafness of spiritual ears and the deadness of spiritual hearts. We are a people who cannot, we cannot speak any word into a deaf ear or shine any light into a blind eye. We cannot raise the dead. When we go to proclaim a gospel of good news that brings freedom from captives, we're talking to people who are enslaved utterly and absolutely. And that includes even us at the start. And it includes even us now still plagued by fallenness in us. We have no power to reverse that, to overcome it. Only the power of God can. This is a kingdom, here's the big point, this is a kingdom that is not natural. But is in every way in the demonic realm and in the physical healing realm and in the gospel penetration and salvation realm, it is in every way supernatural, above nature. We need the power that comes from outside of this created orb. It is the power of God alone as his spirit comes to work that casts out, that heals, and that delivers. That kind of power is needed. to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 and to restore the creation bit by bit to glory as it was supposed to be when God made it all very good. If you fast forward to the end, that full, glorious, very good restoration is coming. We preached about this some time back. And if you lift up your eyes and you see ahead, you see the city. That's coming. The fullness of the kingdom. But that kingdom has come already. And it is of the same sort. It is, it is driven forward by the same power. Spiritual power. The power of God the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, all of that, oh, that you would see in front of yourself, that we would see in front of ourselves some glimpse of the task that is in front of us. Because this is the battle that we still are engaged in, not a battle against flesh and blood, but a battle against spiritual forces of evil. That we would see something of that battle and, 
and in front of it kind of go, oh, who is sufficient for such a task? Who, who can do this? And realize you cannot, but he can. And that is such good news. We, we rarely like to pick fights we know we can't win. Some of us are a little bit more pugnacious than others, I suppose, and like to do that. But most of us, if we realize this is hopeless, we avoid it. This is hopeless, and you can't avoid it. You're born in it. You have to fight for yourself, for your family members, for your neighbors. You have to, you have to fight. You are engaged in a war. <laughs> and the good news is, the good news is that God is engaged in it more deeply and more passionately than you are and is engaged in it with you. And he has the power necessary. Who is sufficient for such a task? Not us. Thankfully, God is. God by his Spirit. And God by his Spirit, if you're a Christian, God by his Spirit wants to powerfully walk with you into and through this war. He lives in you and is at work in you and, and in me and every Christian is working us in, in ways that we are often unaware of waging this war, protecting us from the demonic, healing our bodies, restoring us, pressing the gospel into us and convincing us bit by bit more and more of the, of the beauty of Jesus and the goodness of God. So he, he is in us, but, but what I want to lean on here, what I want to push on is that when we see attached to Jesus these words like in the power of the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, we would find if we were to look ahead into Luke's second book, the book of Acts, that the same kind of phraseology is often attached to the apostles. You can find this kind of language throughout the New Testament. It's not just Jesus. We are to be full of the Holy Spirit. We can walk in the power of the Spirit. I'm not just talking about indwelt by the Spirit. I'm talking about something of abundance. A filling, an empowering. Something that if you grasped the magnitude of the war, you would desperately want. Sometimes the reality of the war kind of breaks in and we see it and say, oh my word, and we pray. But too often, and surely this is part of Satan's wise tactic, too often he keeps the war kind of behind in the shadows. So we think we're kind of carrying along okay, muddling through. Maybe God will, will graciously cause that, that struggle, that, 
the warfare that we are engaged in to, to kind of come to the fore and to break through and to appear to you and to show you in ourselves our utter helplessness and cause you to call out and say, Spirit of God, help. God, help me. And we don't, we don't stop there. It's not that, that the filling of the Spirit, the empowering of the Spirit is not an end in itself. It's for something else. So, so it's, it's better to pray something like this. Spirit of God, will you show me Christ in authority over this trouble? God, will you by your Spirit convince me of the depth and the breadth and the height and the love of Jesus for me? Because I don't believe it right now. I'm struggling. God, will you powerfully by your Spirit open Sally Sue's eyes, the truth of the gospel. I shared it with her, but she doesn't, doesn't see it. Will you open her eyes? So you're, you're praying not for the Spirit to fill you in and of itself, but for the Spirit to be at work through you in a kingdom purpose. Spirit of God, will you make the word to sing, to, to live, so that when I am in my questioning, I'm seeing the prison bars and I'm wondering, is Jesus really real? Would you cause the scriptures to, to, to run, to, to live in my heart and mind so that I will say, yes, he is. Spirit of God, will you do something kingdom work-wise? A heart of dependence like that, a heart of, of submission and a heart of expressing a need, God is eager to meet. The scriptures tell us again and again that there is no God like him who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Waiting does not necessarily involve long periods of time of nothing, Waiting is an attitude of heart, of, of dependence, of I'm looking to you, or on the other hand, I think I got this, and I'm moving ahead without. We have this passage in front of us to show us the, the great authority and power of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit. To show us the great authority and power of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit that he is extremely willing to compassionately, caringly pour out on us. To show us, look at Jesus, the power of the Spirit at work in him, the kingdom has come. And to point out to us this whole thing, life is spiritual and cannot be engaged in naturally with my hands. Clearly, I use my hands. I have to. I have to use my mouth. You have to use your brain. You have to use your feet. You have to, you have to live. But the point is, apart from Him, you can do nothing. Not apart from Him, you can do something Apart from him, it won't work out real well. Apart from him, you can do nothing. This old, there's this old movie, The Untouchables. Uh, Sean Connery has a great role in it. It's about Chicago, a great city. And it's about crime and Sean Connery's character is a cop, and he comes home to find an assassin in his apartment. And 
the assassin pulls out a knife and Sean Connery says, <laughs> he insults him. Just like a racial epithet. Just like a so-and-so to bring a knife to a gunfight. And he pulls out a gun. Now, if you know the rest of the story, unfortunately, he follows him out in the street where somebody else brought a gun. And Sean Connery gets killed. But that moment right there, I think of that, that exchange all the time in relation to this subject. You can't bring a knife to a gunfight. You can't bring your own hands to this fight. It doesn't work. You're essentially unarmed. But the good news is that God has provided for us the Spirit. Great power. And He means to use the Spirit in us to exalt Christ in our lives and through our lives and other people's lives and to bring in piece by piece and day by day the kingdom until one day it fully comes. Bless God for His kindness and trust Him for His Spirit. Let me pray. Lord, would You speak to us now in ways that move us to trust? That move us to earnest dependence and crying out to You and to confidence that You are here and that You are at work. That You are already on the move. Lord, help. Build up Your people individually, then build up Your people here corporately as a body here. Draw in, Lord, draw in some who have resisted You. Alert them to the fact that Your kingdom has come and it is overcoming the world and it has to be reckoned with. The tomb is empty. Christ has risen and it is all true. Make them aware of that and call them to faith. Open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and save, please. And build up us, your people, in hope. Cause us to depend on you. And honor Christ in us and through us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.